I think, um, at least from my own somewhat limited studies, most religions, philosophies, um, tend to tell us um, how we should be. Um, <clears throat> and we, if we uh, have faith, confidence in those teachings, then we set out on a path uh, to try to become the kind of person that we think we should be. Unfortunately, uh, most of these teachings that um, sketch out a picture of the kind of person that we should be tend to be somewhat deficient in detailing all the steps needed to take us from where we are now to where we should be. The result is that many people carry around with them um, a sense of uh, guilt and inadequacy um, because they're not able to live up to the ideals that they have adopted through faith. Now in Buddhism, the Buddha um, began with an analysis, a presentation of the way things are, not the way things should be. And he encouraged us to look at our own experience and ask ourselves whether we can um, recognize the, uh, the patterns and the habits and the, the nature of our existence um, as um, represented in, in the Buddhist teachings. So, in other words, can, does it make sense? The Buddha says um, that we suffer unnecessarily in life because we lack um, a clear perception, a clear vision of the way our bodies and minds work. So this is not for a um, teaching that we um, are ex expected to accept easily, but we are presented with certain challenging hypotheses which we use to look at our life. And the extent to which we discover that the Buddha's analysis um, expresses eloquently our own experience to that extent faith arises. 
the word um, Buddha, as I'm sure many of you will know, um, is derived from the word meaning awake. So the Buddha was the one who was awakened, who is awake. And the Buddha's enlightenment was the enlightenment of a human being, a special human being in many ways, but nevertheless a human being for all that. And through his awakening, he became Buddha, the Buddha, um, after which time it would not really be accurate to refer to him as a human being anymore. Um, although um, externally he would not have changed um, appreciably through his enlightenment. The Buddha um, became enlightened as a representative of the human race, proving the human capacity for enlightenment. So, uh, belief um, in, in Buddhism is not restricted to things that we can prove um, through our own meditation practice, for instance, in every case. The events that took place, the event that took place in particular 2,500 more years ago in Bodhgaya in India is not something that we can test for historical accuracy. But that is not um, a serious issue for us as Buddhists because the um, essential element of our faith is not um, in the um, particular events, circumstances of the Buddha's life so much as what they represent to us. So belief in that the Buddha was truly enlightened, that there is such a thing as enlightenment, um, leads on to a belief in the human potential for enlightenment and then most importantly um, from there to belief in our own capacity for enlightenment, whether we are male or female, uh, European, Asian, African, um, being born as a human being means that we have all that is needed um, to realize enlightenment. And um, that is the um, the, the basis upon which we approach the Buddha's teaching, that confidence in our own ability to abandon all that is unwholesome or negative, to cultivate all that is positive, uh, noble and good, and the ability to free ourselves from all suffering and its cause, defilement. So the Buddha is um, telling us that 
as human beings, we have a wonderful capacity. And the Buddha on many occasions said that being born in the human realm is um, incredibly difficult. And to be reborn in the human realm and have contact and ability to study and practice the Buddha's teachings um, is even more um, difficult to achieve. But that um, capacity for freedom, inner freedom, enlightenment is, um, is an inheritance, if you like. It is a capacity, but only one that will be realized through a systematic education of every aspect of our lives, an, an education of the way that we relate to the physical world, an education of the way we relate to the social world, an education of emotion, an education of our thinking and our wisdom faculty. And this education, which is uh, usually um, spoken of in terms of the Eightfold Path, or um, sometimes in its shortened, abbreviated form as the Threefold Training, <clears throat> or sometimes the Four Kinds of Pavana or Cultivation, <clears throat> is something that um, we all must take responsibility for ourselves. And yet, um, our ability to take responsibility for ourselves, to do the work uh, necessary to become a refuge to ourselves, um, is greatly dependent on the access to um, good friends, good spiritual friendship, teachers. So although um, the Theravada school of Buddhism stresses self-reliance a great deal, um, it is balanced by an emphasis on um, supportive, nourishing spiritual relationships um, and the effort to uh, cultivate good friends and to become a good friend is central to Buddhist teachings. So in Theravada Buddhist teaching we don't um, have the idea of the guru um, in the same way um, that we may find in Tibetan Vajrayana tradition, for instance. But here the, the teacher is the ultimate good friend. The qualities of the, uh, the good friend, uh, the, the teacher as good friend, are uh, that he's someone who inspires um, affection, someone who inspires respect, uh, respect, someone who inspires the desire to emulate them, to follow them in their practice. Uh, the, the teacher as good friend is one who is endlessly patient with the foibles and weaknesses of his students or her students. Um, someone who is able to um, communicate well, who has, uh, knows how to speak with different people and different groups of people in the most effective way. He's a, he or she is a good communicator. 
and especially someone who is able to explain the most profound topics in the most simple and direct way possible. So, uh, you know, a side note here that simplicity um, of presentation and the ability to speak in a way easily understandable um, is much praised these days, but that there must always be the reservation that things should not be simple for simple sake. In other words, simple to the extent that one is glossing over or avoiding things which are difficult to understand. So it must be a simplicity which accurately and completely represents the complex. Lastly, the, the teacher is someone uh, who never misleads, takes advantage of, manipulates um, students in any way. So these are the qualities of the teacher as good friend. So we, uh, we realize this is work that we have to do but alone, but it's work we do alone with others. Um, and the uh, practicing alone and practicing in a group um, have different things to offer. Um, I myself in my monastic career of uh, after 30, 40 years have spent uh, many, many years in, uh, in, in community and many years in, in solitude and, um, and also observed um, the practice of many, many others. And my conclusions are that um, neither is necessarily superior to the other that the advantage of um, being alone or being able to decide um, on your practice, the, the, the style of practice, um, and the time you devote to different kind of practices um, gives you a continuity and an ability to um, go deeper than might be possible in a community in which you have various responsibilities to honor. But the, uh, the solitary life is one uh, of extremes in the sense that if the practice is going very well, then you don't have anything to distract you from it. But um, the obverse is true, um, and that if the practice is going um, poorly, uh, you don't have the support from those around you to pull you up and to help you out. Um, this is why before uh, monastics are allowed to or um, permitted to go off by themselves, they, they do a reasonably long period, usually five years, um, which they are mainly living in community. Um, because in community, uh, you have that support that maybe uh, you don't go so high, but you don't go so low. Um, and you attain a stability of practice. Uh, but also in community, um, you experience a very useful kind of discomfort. 
Um, and that's the discomfort of living with people who have different ideas, different views, um, not, of course, in the major matters of practice, but in smaller everyday matters, and people who have a different idea of who you are than you have. And so there's a constant um, uh, friction living in any kind of community, even a spiritual community, and for one on the path of practice, of awakening, that is not a bad thing, on the contrary, because um, any kind of mental discomfort, as opposed to physical discomfort, is always and in every case um, bound up with some inner defilement of mind or inner toxic mental state. So um, whenever we um, have that sense of frustration and irritation and um, <clears throat> uh, stress and so on and so forth that comes through living in community um, as a practitioner of, of the Dhamma, we recognize this is a, a joint production. You know, we're not just blaming ourselves and saying, uh, oh, we shouldn't be like this, because then we're back into that old model of uh, leading a spiritual life in order to become um, a special kind of person. You know, the moment you start getting onto that track, I should be kinder, I'm a Buddhist, I should be kind, I should be able to forgive, but I can't, therefore I'm bad, or I shouldn't feel so much greed um, for this or for that, it's bad. I'm bad. It's bad, therefore I'm bad. This is the, the logic um, of wrong view, as we call it in Buddhism. So now we're, we're interested in awakening, following the Buddhist path of awakening to the things and the way things are and learning from experience. And so this um, constant kind of friction and, and emotion that's coming up um, is exactly the point. You know, this is this is where the practice lies. Um, my teacher Ajahn Chah used to say, you know, when people um, get upset at home and get have problems, and they come to the monastery and want to go on retreat for a while, and it's not that that's um, bad thing necessarily. It may be a very good thing, but um, the the thing that always to remember is that it's like your house is on fire, um, where are you going to tip the water? And you tip the water where the fire is, um, and that's where you have to do the work, and it's not somewhere else, or in running away from that. But you need the, the tools, the presence of mind, the clarity of mind, um, to be able to deal with fire sometimes, and so a period of retreat can be um, a, a wise option. In that case, but it's not the answer. The answer is learning how to deal with the fires that arise um, and recognizing that we need to go beyond a praise and blame or right and wrong model of conflicts and looking at patterns of contribution. Whenever there's any kind of conflict, there's what I call a pattern of contribution. And the contribution might be coming 70-80% from one side um, and only a small 
percentage from the other side, but there always has to be a contribution from both sides for any conflict. So learning to map that contribution, having sufficient clarity of mind, being able to put down all the hurt thoughts and emotions and looking at the contribution. And then, for instance, we can see if someone has been behaving very badly or um, speaking badly, then um, that bad behavior, that unkind, selfish behavior is not to be condoned or overlooked. Um, and similarly, um, hurtful, abusive speech. But we need to separate that from the suffering that arises in our minds when we are faced with that. Because that is not a necessary result of being the object of unkind actions or speech. There's no fixed relationship between somebody else's actions and your mental state. This is where the possibility for inner freedom uh, becomes, um, becomes apparent. Because when somebody um, acts badly, speaks badly to us, towards us, then the most upsetting element is this sense, it shouldn't be like that. He or she shouldn't act like that, shouldn't speak like that. We have an idea of how things should be and are hurt, outraged, depressed at the difference, at the gap, the yawning gap between how things are and how things um, and how we would like things to be, or how we think things should be. But recognizing that things are this way because of various causes and conditions, both within us, within the other person, in the, uh, in the environment, and being able to um, let go of all the thoughts and, and emotion and awakening to the pattern of contribution. Now it needs to be emphasized that Buddhism is not saying you should just be at peace with whatever happens. If you're suffering it's your fault therefore you know meditate and do something about that. Um, this is not a passive um, teaching where you just um, make do, make, put up with whatever's going on. But the Buddha is teaching us to uh, make our mind clear enough that we can step out of that whole sense of self and he hurt me, she abused me, uh, he showed contempt for me, he has no um, concern for my feelings all that kind of whirlpool of negative thinking and finding a refuge in the calm of the mind and then being able to map the contributions to the present situation. And that might um, require us to confront that person or even to end relationship with that person 
or it might not. Um, but the, the Buddha's teaching is the clearer your mind, uh, the better decisions that you will make. So, um, you know, when people uh, come to uh, to monks, sometimes they want monks to make important decisions for them, um, giving out of respect for your wisdom or your spiritual authority. But um, this happens to me quite a lot, and what I uh, will generally say to people um, is. This is not a decision for me to make, it's your decision, um, but uh, you're only going to make a good decision um, if you can clear your mind. And You have to um, put that work into developing the mindfulness and the clarity of mind in which you can make the best possible decision for you and then take responsibility for it. So the, the Buddha's teaching is that... Uh, Morality, ethics, um, our ability to make good decisions, wise decisions, um, should not come from a particular philosophy, even a Buddhist philosophy. But that our first effort should be to be creating the conditions, particularly the inner conditions, um, in which we can make a good choice and in which we can recognize the way things are. Because um, the Buddha taught us that morality in a Buddhist sense are, are those kinds of um, agreements, that standards that we adopt in uh, our communities in such a way that our, um, our conduct is in harmony, reflects the way things are. So for those of you familiar with these terms, we have a word of Satcha Dhamma and Jariya Dhamma, or Satcha Tam and Jariya Tam. So Jariya Tam or Jariya Dhamma are all those conventions, laws, customs, uh, agreements, uh, regulations, which accurately map onto the way things are. So the more that you're in harmony with the way things are, the more your conduct reflects that. And so this is one of the reasons why one of the traditional um, uh, words used to expre express the concept of morality in Buddhism is the, the Thai word bokati. It's the norm. It's just a normal and natural way of expressing your understanding of the way things are. I'll give you an example here. Um, sense of gratitude. You know, everybody, uh, I think, uh, recognizes that as a, as a virtue. But um, it's not something you can tell yourself to be, you should be grateful, you know. So you have a, um, children open their presents on Christmas, you know, and they sort of pull this miserable face, and you say, you should be grateful, or you say, it's the thought that counts. And it's this idea that you can bully someone into being grateful, or, you, you know, you should be a grateful person. Um, but um, my experience, uh, and I would suggest for many people, is when you start to meditate and you start looking at your mind more closely, 
then all kinds of new thoughts um, bubble up into the mind. And uh, for me, when I was first meditating um, you know, on a daily basis for a number of hours every day in some before I became a monk and I was living in India as a teenager, I, uh, the things that really came up most strongly and, and completely unexpectedly were the sense of gratitude to my parents um, for all that they provided for me, uh, both uh, in the physical support and, of course, and also mental emotional support um, and something that I'd taken for granted. And... Um, if, if there's any um, indicator that um, meditation is doing you some good in your life or you're starting to get some benefit from it, um, it I don't think that you should measure it in terms of some kind of special, peaceful, blissful, um, spiritual states of mind, um, but that you start to re cognize, re-question, awaken to so many of the most basic things that you've always taken for granted in your life. So you're, you're through this effort to keep putting down this delight and indulgence in passing mental states, um, you begin uh, to uh, see more clearly just what's going on. Um, getting away from the content of mental states and seeing the process of mental states. Um, this gives uh, the mind a spaciousness and an ease, and things start to arise very naturally and gradually. Um, and this, uh, for me, as I say, it was um, an awareness of just how to what extent I'd taken um, the kindness and the support of my family uh, for granted. I, I left home when I was 17 and, you know, would have been uh, quite happy never to go back again. You know, I was um, just exalting in being out of the home. Um, and it was over a year before, you know, I really um, uh, looked at that whole sense of constriction and being in prison and resentment to my family in a whole new light. And I think that if you uh, start looking at your mind and seeing both the negative and the positive mental states and, and things that are going on, um, then it's, it's hard for me to see how you could sustain that um, kind of conceited, aggressive conceit um, and, and self-belief, um, uh, very blind self-belief that um, so many people carry around with them. And so it's not that humbleness um, is something that you should um, be, you should be humble. But uh, when you see how much you owe to others, then humility arises naturally. So humility, sense of gratitude, um, so many of these um, beautiful, noble qualities of mind are not produced by some kind of project to um, develop them as such, as that they are the natural um, outcomes, inevitable outcomes of inner 
awareness, um, this awakening to the way things are. And so as we look more closely and observing what's going on very minutely, then the relationship between our actions and our emotions or our mental states becomes more clearly. We realize when we act in certain ways, we speak in certain ways, uh, it makes us very agitated, makes us full of uh, regret, increases uh, um, uh, sense of um, self-aversion, lack of self-respect, uh, and so on, um, leads to all kinds of uh, negative results, including an unwillingness to be with ourselves. The la when we behave badly, the last person we want to spend time with is ourselves. Um, and so when, you, when you're in that behaving um, unwisely, unskillfully period, you don't want to meditate because you don't want to come face to face with the consequences, emotional consequences of your actions. So this is why developing um, meditation practice and that habit of inner observation um, is so important and something to be sustained. And because then that um, care in the way that you behave and the way that you act uh, becomes just a natural outcome of this wise understanding and, and uh, observation of the way in which unkind, unwholesome action um, creates suffering and problems both for ourselves and those around us. So this is a practice of learning to wake up. And the Buddha says that the more we wake up, the wiser we become, and the wiser we become, then the more that affects um, our, our life in the world, whether we're a monastic or a lay, lay person. So this, this is the fundamental principle. It's not adoption of Buddhist beliefs and principles and trying to be a special person in any way, but putting that constant effort into awakening to what's going on right now. Um, often, you know, you, maybe you, um, you get to, uh, you're traveling somewhere and uh, you get there and you realize you're kind of stressed out or irritable and you don't quite know why. Um, but if you observe, then uh, let's say on the whole of a journey, you've had this kind of low-level uh, resistance to um, and dislike of feeling hot, feeling sweaty, or loud music um, from a speaker somewhere in a, in a, in a train or in a, in a taxi or something. And so there, there's, this, there's this, without that observation and awakening to what's going on right now, then there's this very uh, low-level um, accumulation of um, negative mental states, but at such a level that we rarely, it rarely reaches um, that intensity that really imposes itself upon us. So um, mindfulness is um, not simply a practice of being here now. Mindfulness is uh, embedded within the Eightfold Path, and there is a moral and ethical dimension to it, a, a sense of 
recognizing what mental states are harmful um, and preventing them from uh, taking over the mind and also the uh, mindfulness of those mental states which are nourishing to the mind and which may be taken up and cultivated. So the, um, <clears throat> the effort is to care for the mind, care for the, uh, care for, uh, the body, care for speech, um, and to deal with negative mental states that arise in the most effective, compassionate way, and also um, to constantly be seeking to develop, to cultivate uh, wholesome mental states. And that, um, the heart of that is this effort to observe, to see what happens when somebody praises us, what happens when somebody um, <clears throat> uh, treats us unfairly or criticizes us unfairly, rather than um, simply enjoying the praise or feeling hurt by the criticism or trying to get away from the criticism, then we see this as a, a teaching moment. This is awareness of we can really see what's going on in our mind and see the need to, um, to care for the mind and to train the mind, and educate the mind. Um, so when we have this sense of ourselves as uh, a student of life, as it were, then um, this tendency that we have to, um, to discriminate as um, good and bad in terms of I like this and I don't like this and I like this, therefore it's good, I don't like this, therefore it's bad, um, which sounds very childish but which often underlies our, our reaction to experiences. Um, then, we, then we are looking uh, to find ways of uh, revealing and dealing skillfully with um, unwholesome mental states and to, uh, to plant and to cultivate positive mental states um, throughout the day. So I, I think I've um, spoken enough for this morning. I'd like to end the talk at this point. So from now on, we have about 20 minutes, and it's a chance for you to, to ask a question to Ajahn. So if you do have a question, please raise your hand, and volunteers will bring the microphone to you. My humble greetings to Ajahn Jayasara. My name is Tripur, and I'm a student at Thammasat University. I just uh, have some question in my mind that um, I have been practicing meditation recently almost regularly but my uh, my parents are really concerned about my practice they do not meditate and when I talk about meditation they say that we are not never going to meditate so they are really concerned about my practice and it sometimes concerns me and my intention um, is that I would like to get deeper and get more, do more meditation practice to understand more about the teachings. But the kind of, um, the kind of reaction that I get from my parents um, sometimes 
makes me feel like um, um, maybe I'm not ma- able to make them understand it. So what can I do about it? Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I've noticed this uh, real shift um, in, in this country, particularly from when I was first teaching. Uh, a lot of people will come and say, how can I get my kids to be interested in meditation? They're not interested at all. And then over the past 10 years or so, now it's all people complaining about their parents or, or asking, not complaining necessarily, but how can I get my parents to... Um, meditate and so there was you know a period in in Thailand particularly like 30 40 years ago when this uh, Western uh, inspired development um, and all the ideas and values associated with it just was swept through this country and and I, I remember being really shocked when I came the number of people who who um, who would ask um, if you meditate, will, it, will you go crazy? You know, this was like a major fear of people, like middle-class urban people in Bangkok, you know, who, um, this, uh, this idea that meditation will make you go crazy. And um, uh, I don't know, maybe there was one person, some, you know, it was in the newspapers or something, and people, uh, I don't know exactly how that came about. Um, in reply to your question, I, I would say, um, talking with anybody, um, you know, try to start from where they're at rather than from where you're at, and and uh, and that's that's a good way in. I mean, one one way I've I've talked to people about it is look at look at the world and look at the corruption and the greed and the hatred and the jealousy and all these things that we see in the world around us. Um, is, do we, is it always going to be like this? Does it have to be like this? Um, is there anything that we can do? Uh, or what's our responsibility as a human being living in a society where the forces of greed and selfishness and so on are so strong? Um, and is there any um, systematic means of reducing the amount of greed and hatred and jealousy and, and, and so on and so forth and anxiety and depression and all these things um, in the human mind. Um, I would say that, yes, there is, that the Eightfold Path laid down by the Buddha um, is an extremely effective way. What we call meditation is one element of that Eightfold Path Meditation as such is not a panacea. It's not like a magic cure. Um, It has to be embedded within the whole um, body of the Buddha's teachings to be really effective in the way that the Buddha taught. If meditation is just taken out of its context, it can just be like a a stress reduction technique, uh, which is if if that's all somebody wants from it, that's fine. But in terms of Buddhist idea that that's a um, very reductionist idea. But um, if you can tell your parents that this is a way of understanding myself and being able to deal uh, with the, uh, the greed, the hatred, the anxieties, the fears, and, and all the mental states within me um, that cause me to suffer, 
and that it's, uh, for me it seems a very rational and effective way of realizing some happiness in this crazy world. Um, and I think, you know, of course your parents, they want you to be happy. They don't want you to suffer. So if you're able to explain to them exactly why you think that meditation will reduce the amount of suffering in your life and the amount of suffering you cause for others and increase the amount of happiness in your life and the amount of happiness that you have to share with others, then I think that that might be one way of approaching it. Also, you know, the old adage that like um, actions are louder than words and um, often someone uh, is practicing as a Buddhist or meditating um, people around you start to notice. You know, you should uh, be more uh, kinder and, and sensitive to others, uh, more integrity, more, um, more patience, more, you know, the, these kinds of things um, people pick up on and notice. And they're, they're the proof of the pudding. You know, they're the proof that this is something that's worthwhile giving time to. But it's also try to be uh, to recognize specifically what your parents' fears are. Are they are there fears that if you meditate, you'll just become this kind of totally spiritual being, and you won't and you won't want to work, and you won't want to fulfill your responsibilities to your family or to society? Uh, are you afraid it's like going to be like a cult, and you become kind of weird? Um, so you know you have to be able to also to try to identify the specific fears and anxieties they have, and to answer each specific anxiety as best you can. Um, may I ask um, Ajahn Cheyasaro, um, I'm from Ubunrachatani. I'm a good um, um, practitioner and a beginner from uh, meditation, but um, I don't have much time to go to the temple. I will do it during uh, weekends or holidays when I go back to visit my parents. Um, I have been told by some good friends that you should have a, a good teacher to teach you how to <coughs> meditate. And this is a good way or the, the gateway to learn how to be awakening. But um, when I feel something frustrating on myself or on my mind, or being treated um, unwise or uh, bad behavior by my colleagues. I know how to learn um, to let it go. It's not so easy to do that, but in the end, I learn how to stop that uh, frustrating emotion and I let it go. So this is a, I don't know, this is a good way to be... Um, uh, a beginner of uh, being medic meditation, or should I have to find out a good teacher to 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 um, to do uh, meditation as a pra practice and a gateway to be uh, awakening? Thank you. Yes, I think when you first begin meditation, if it's possible um, to take some time off and uh, go on a meditation retreat or a course, um, that's very good to um, just to leave your, your, your surroundings and your responsibilities and just devote yourself to uh, meditation uh, for a number of days. 
um, because first off, you get a confidence with the technique and meditation practice. You have some uh, opportunity for asking questions. And um, also, you develop a little self-confidence because uh, you see, oh, yeah, I can do this. Even there are some, there is some improvement that you can see. Um, when you're, if your meditation is reaching quite a high level, then uh, you need more uh, contact with a teacher. But for most people practicing in daily life, it's enough to. Um, if you're meditating every day and you have some uh, some questions, to go to see a teacher once a month or something like this is probably enough. You don't need to be, um, you know, living in the same monastery or in the same place. And don't forget that we're now living in the most privileged, um, fortunate era. You know, uh, you have access to teachings that Buddhists have never had in the past. You know, you can, you, you can, on your iPod, you can choose between arahants and, and, and you can turn them off when you had enough, you know. So, <laughs> I, I mean, there's, there's the, you know, the access to teachings, free teachings, uh, whether it's uh, on the TV, the radio, on the internet, um, there's, there's so much there that um, you can look to for advice and uh, and support and on those occasions where you, you can't get to the monastery or to the teacher. So I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a problem. It's very uh, useful to have a daily meditation practice in, in the morning. Um, many people start off like meditating last thing at night, but usually you're quite tired by that time um, and you know, often get sleepy and then start to get um, discouraged because get sleepy when you meditate. Um, it's good just to calm the mind before sleeping and meditating at night's good, but it's very useful to uh, for first thing in the morning to get up just a little bit earlier because it's a quiet time. You don't have so much on going on in your mind. And what's very important is that after that, you can see, you can feel the effects of the meditation in the next few hours at least. Um, and if you can be very observant of how the meditation period affects your sense of calm and patience and, and mindfulness during the day, that will give you a real um, uh, encouragement to, to keep up and do it every day. But during the day, also, if you can just have just short periods, you know, like even like one minute or two, you know, like when someone's on a computer or something, they get like tired and then they want some relaxation and maybe they're, they're lying or they're, they're Facebook or, or something, you know, just to relax for a few minutes, which is okay. But um, sometimes if you just sit and just watch your breath for 60 seconds or two minutes, you know, it's a far more refreshing and you can begin again and begin again and cut a long day up into short sessions where you have like a refresh, refreshment, uh, a mindfulness refreshment from just a very short period of meditation. doesn't need to be a long meditation in a quiet place, but just in front of your computer or just sitting down on a chair normally, just 
coming back and re-establishing your attention. Ajahn Jayasura, I just want to ask one more question. Um, normally, when we are very curious about the teachings of the Buddha, we tend to read a lot of books, listen to a lot of Dhamma talks by different kinds of teachers from different traditions. So, reading a lot of books and getting a lot of ideas, could that be in some way distracting when meditating? Well, the very fact that you're asking this question suggests that you suspect it is. Yes, I, I think that we have to be clear of our intention when we read or listen to Dhamma. So it's one part of Dhamma practice. And uh, we read and we listen, study for information, uh, for knowledge of the, of the path and what's correct, incorrect, um, and also for encouragement and inspiration. So those are good legitimate reasons for reading. But we should look at it as one spiritual practice um, and be disciplined about um, when and for how long uh, we read because it can easily just become you know another kind of distraction you know rather than be with your mind and read something because you get immediate kind of sense of you know uplift and it feels good and um, and then that, that starts to replace the actual work um, of, of practice itself um, similarly if you're not practicing at the same time then the differences in idiom and language used by even teachers of the same tradition um, can be confusing if you don't have any kind of experiential basis to, to filter it or to, to understand it by. Um, so I, I would say that um, once you, in the beginning, when you first start to practice Buddhism, let's say, uh, you're, you're going to focus on Theravada Buddhism, then for the first year or two, then put aside, you know, uh, Hindu texts or even Tibetan texts and so on, and, and, and keep your reading to the Theravada tradition, at least for a, you know, for a while. Um, because it, it, it's just too confusing otherwise. It's like trying to learn a number of different languages at once. Um, after some years, of, uh, even within the Theravada tradition, you've got this huge spectrum also. So spend some time reading different teachings, and then after a sufficient time, just choose one and then focus in on that. So, you know, it's not like censoring and being very narrow-minded, but it's more like focusing, focusing down until you, you have something which is most supportive for the practice that you've adopted. When you're really confident in that and you, and you really know your way around that, then you can go back to teachings from uh, Tibetan Buddhism, from Mahayana tradition, from Zen, and from, or for, even from other religious traditions, and you can integrate them with, 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 uh, with your practice um, if you wish to do that. But until you have that kind of confidence and fluency in this one particular practice, it can be more confusing than helpful. My name is Nam Pung. I've been practicing meditation for certain extent of times already, but uh, I have a few 
So I have some confusion a little bit about uh, walking and sitting meditations because my uh, my teacher she she suggests me to start with the walking first for about one hour and then followed by the sitting meditations. Uh, several times that I, I can do as as being suggested, but uh, sometime when I when I get up later. I don't have enough time, and I so I just start with the sitting meditation right away, without walking first, and I try to to get some feeling whether to compare whether it is it better or not, or is it is it good enough to to meditation by only sitting, or have to do both uh, meditations, and. Uh, as, because I think I'm, I'm still as a beginner of practicing, so but I would like to have your suggestion whether what would be the ideal practice. I should start by walking first every time and then follow by sitting, or it can be already just sitting right away. Thank you very much. You know, when we um, become students of a teacher and we take um, in, in monastic term, we say we take dependence on them, or, or we have like a formal teacher-student relationship, um, then there is certain ethical responsibility to, uh, to follow his advice or her advice. Um, so um, I don't want to um, interfere in your relationship with your teacher if that's how he wants you to practice. Um, but on a, on a general level, um, I would say that there's, there's no fixed need um, to walk first before sitting or sitting first before walking. Um, and that um, you should just find which um, is most appropriate um, given the, uh, the place in which you're living. You know, often you may well be in a place which is not possible to walk very much um, certain times of the day or night um, and it seems to me unlikely that you would always be able to walk before you sit or that it would be most helpful. Um, <clears throat> so uh, these are different, you know, different ways of, of practicing. So we're developing the sitting practice we're learning how to be awake in stillness. And in the walking practice, we're learning how to be awake within movement. So these two things complement each other. If someone only sitting and only learns how to be uh, awake while they're sitting and is still in a very kind of artificial environment, um, uh, then uh, they may have trouble outside of that particular posture and in, in maintaining mindfulness in daily life, for instance. Um, but um, just walking, um, similarly, um, only developing that awareness within movement, um, it never goes as deep as the mindfulness sitting with your eyes closed. Um, so some, some monks who do a lot of walking, when they become very peaceful, they, they maybe stand and, or they have a, a seat by the side of their walking path um, and they realize the mind wants to go m more deeply then they just sit down or stand. <clears throat> so 
the the choice whether to to walk or to sit um, can be influenced by many different factors. If you have some illness um, making it difficult to sit, then you can walk a lot more. Um, if you have some uh, problem preventing you from walking, then sit more. Um, if you can't walk or or sit, then practice laying down. You know, it, it's a matter of grasping the basic principle and then applying it um, in the best possible way given the circumstances you find yourselves in. So there's no, there's no fixed rule that you have to walk first before you sit that I'm familiar with. So maybe the, the last question. Yeah, okay. Namaskar, Prajan. I'm just going to have a really short question. I have a friend and we have an issue together and he said we can just, why do we have to go to meditate in the meditation center? Why do we need Ajahn to actually guide us? Why can't we just stay at home and meditate? Yes, you can. That's the question. Yeah, why not? It's actually him. He asked me and we have issue together so he doesn't believe me. So, mm. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, why not? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, um, um, if you actually do that, um, just it's very hard for uh, most people to be consistent um, when they're just relying on their own efforts and their own inspiration, um, and having that support and being able the opportunity to uh, to listen to and to meet. Um, people who've been practicing for a long time, um, I think is, uh, is a valuable, um, valuable thing and um, it's one of the benefits of living in a country like Thailand where you can do that. Um, you know, when you say, well, is it really necessary, you know, well, that, I mean, necessary is a really interesting word, isn't it? What does necessary mean, you know? Um, how, how do you define necessary? You wouldn't die if you didn't go, would you? I mean, so it's not necessary to your continued existence as a human being. Um, but if we, we're looking in terms of growth in the Dhamma and growing in our understanding and our commitment to, to this practice, um, then meeting with, uh, with others who have the same interests and values and goals and listening to someone who's um, who's well practiced and has um, uh, reflections that um, he, uh, worthy sharing with others seems like a good thing to do better than going to a shopping mall or going to a restaurant or something. Yeah.